Happy Sunday afternoon. Hope you guys are having an awesome Sunday. It is a beautiful day, less snow here in the city of Toronto. And we're, I'm so happy that you can join me here for another Kako tea. Yes, it's it, today's gonna be an experience. I have waited for this interview. I've longed for this interview and I got this interview. And I am so happy that I could share with you this afternoon, another exciting show, Kako Tea. This program is available on Digicel Play Go app, so you can actually see it in countries all over the world. So if you probably on the go and you wanna hop off the Facebook Live, you can always tap into the Digicel Play Go app. If you've not downloaded it, it's also sponsored by Easy Barrels. They are your shipping company of choice out of New York City. Joining me this afternoon is, yes, Desmond Cole is joining me this afternoon. I'm, I'm very excited to have him here on my show. Uh, before I, I introduce him, I get him on the show and I'll let you know a little bit about um, how I met him, how I know him, how I got him on Kako Tea. Uh, I just want to do a uh, land acknowledgement. Of course, uh, Toronto is in the dish with one spoon territory. And the dish with one spoon is a treaty between the Anishinaabes and the Mississaugas, as well as the Haudenosaunees, and that bounds them to share the territory and protect the land. Subsequently, Indigenous nations and peoples, Europeans and all newcomers have been invited into this treaty in the spirit of peace, friendship, and respect. Today joining me is a freelance journalist and a radio host. He actually just got off his show, that is News Talk 1010, and the author of the anticipated The Skin I'm In, which is a memoir sharing experiences as a black person in Canada. I wanna to welcome to Kakoti for the very first time, Desmond Cole. Hi, Desmond. Hi there. How are you doing, J.O.? It's so nice to be with you. So it's awesome to have you here with me. Sorry, a little bit of a glitch, but that's okay. Um, can you hear me okay? Are you hearing me okay, Desmond? Can you hear me? Not sure if I'm still on. I can't hear you anymore, JL. Okay, well, I can. On. This, get this going on. There we go. There we go. Can you hear me? You hear me okay? I can see you. I don't know if you can see me, but I can see you. Now I see you. Are you hearing me? I sure am. Great, awesome. Welcome, Desmond. Thank you so very much for having me. I just want to let you know the audience because my audience spreads far and wide, especially in the Caribbean. So just want to let them know a little bit about how I actually um, got to know about you or met you and all of that, that good stuff. Um, I actually uh, read about you a few times because you've made the headlines in, in Toronto quite a few times. Um, and um, following that, you were invited to uh, Ryerson University to do a talk um, about your experiences and also just to give a briefing about 
what was um, expected to come in your your new book that comes out on January twenty eighth, right? Next week. Next week. Yeah, next week, um, and that is a big deal, I'm sure, for you as well as um, for those who've actually followed you. Um, first of all, I like to start my show by asking folks a little bit about themselves and and who they identify themselves as. Who are you, Desmond? Um. I am the son of parents from uh, Sierra Leone, Freetown, Sierra Leone in West Africa. Um, I was born in Red Deer, Alberta in 1982. I'm mm -hmm. 37 years old. Um, I am I am a troublemaker, um, <laughs> I guess, in brief. You know, I'm, I am a believer that the struggle for black liberation in my country, in Canada and around the world um, is my struggle. It's my fight, that it is a collective fight that actually belongs to all of us, but many of us are not as black people and as others choosing to take on that fight for the liberation of black people and by extension, the liberation of everyone. Um, I am a journalist. I am an activist uh, with the publication of this book coming. I am an author. Um, I am a lover of the colors of nature, flowers, birds, the sky. Um, I'm a lover of music and a musician a little bit myself. Um, I'm a lover of dancing when I can get that in. And um, I spend most of my life fighting for racial equity, specifically for the liberation of black people because of all of the challenges that we continue to face hundreds of years after colonization, enslavement. Those echoes of history are still all with us and they inform everything that I see around me in my country so I try to be honest about those things, to write about those things, to talk about those things, and to recruit others to the fight for our collective liberation. What was life for you growing up as a Black child in Canada? Well, I had to learn that I was Black first. I know that's a very common experience for so many people, but um, when you're born and you grow up, you don't immediately understand what it means to be black or what it means to be white and how those things will matter in your life, but you start to learn. So for example, I share an anecdote in the book um, about myself where I was about five, six, and I was in grade one. And you know, you sit on the carpet with your classmates and you draw pictures and you color. And I was growing up in a city just at about an hour's train ride east of Toronto called Oshawa. And in Oshawa, almost everybody's white. And it was a lot even more white when I was growing up there. So when I'm sitting on this carpet drawing and coloring with my classmates who are almost all white, one of them says to the other to pass the skin color pencil crayon. And this pencil crayon that everybody in my classroom except me immediately understood was this kind of light pinky color of Vape. crayon. 
<laughs> yeah, the beigey, pinky kind of thing. They all knew what that was. Oh, yeah, the skin color. Here you go. Here's the skin color pencil crayon. And, you know, I'm like, hang on a second. Like, what are they talking about? They're not talking about me. And that was one of the first times that I became really conscious of race and how people without even really realizing it are excluding you from the day to day. So um, as I got older, I started more taking notice of experiences like that. I started talking more to my parents and to other family members around other family friends. And all of them would tell me, well, yeah, this is how it is. This is what it means to be a black person in Canada. This is what it means to come from Sierra Leone, which was also colonized by the British. This is what it means when your parents tell you you have I didn't want to hear this person. I wanted to believe that everybody was equal. But the older you get in this country, the harder that it is to really believe that anymore. You've actually been stopped over 50 times in Canada. And for most people, um, we hear on the news a lot about Americans, Black Americans, being pulled over, being stopped, being shot at. But you, you never really had anything happening in Canada, so to speak. And you've actually been stopped over 50 times. And you say in your book and openly that it is because you are black. When did you realize that your color was considered a threat? Um, I started to understand it in a more personal way when I was 19 and I went away to university. I was accepted to university after high school at... Uh, a school called Queens, which is in Kingston, Ontario, another Kingston. And, uh, you know, I was very proud to be uh, accepted into university. And I went there, but I noticed almost immediately in this other very, very white space that I was now in, that police were following me all over my campus, whether that be when I'm walking, whether that be when I'm driving in my car. I noticed that the police were always around. And I started to get really scared. At first, I was paranoid. At first, I was like, maybe I'm imagining this. Is this really happening to me? But after a while, I started to understand, no, this is really real. And one night, uh, I was walking home. And there is a pizza store very close to my house with a little laneway behind it. And I was walking through that laneway. It was a shortcut I took every single day to go home. And a police, a police car with two cops inside roll up behind me creeped up very slowly behind me with its lights on. And I stopped and I was very scared. These cops got out of their car and asked me to identify myself. I gave up my ID and um, they took it back to the car. And I was just standing there and I'm in this alleyway thinking to myself, if something happens to me in this alleyway and I shout, will anyone even hear me? That was the first time I feared for my own personal life from the police. And um, this would continue happen to me in my late teenage and early 20s, dozens and dozens of times. I want to say something about that too, JL, because people want to pretend like my own story of this happening to me is somehow unique. That oh, it's I really weird or surprising that I personally have been stopped dozens of times by the police. I didn't grow up 
in social housing in Toronto, where the police literally park their cars outside of housing projects and stop people every day, stop people multiple times a day. That was not my experience. I know people who can get stopped 50 times in a week. I know people who are stopped from the time they are seven, eight, nine-year-old children walking home from school stopped by the police. That didn't happen to me either. One of the most dangerous things, though, that we can do is to focus this as one person's weird or wacky or surprising experience and to ignore systemic racism and white supremacy as it exists in this country. This is a white man's country with a white man's government that pledges allegiance to a white queen, a queen, a monarch. So given that this is the country that we live in, my experience is hardly new. And the most, uh, I think, insidious thing about racism in Canada is that we just pretend that it's a surprise every time. And um, Black people cannot afford to do that because it's our lives that are at stake. Now, you, you mentioned about not being raised in the projects or in, in the poor areas in, in Toronto. Um, years ago, the, the city of Toronto had to abandon the the policing which is what all they call it the, the card policing practice um, because they felt it was somewhat uh, a racist um, practice or it was a discriminatory practice so to speak they actually didn't say racist but it was a discriminatory practice what what were your views on the carding system that was implemented in Toronto years ago so I want to be clear as I answer this, that carding is not over. Um, carding has never been stopped. Carding has never gone away. When the government could no longer hide that they were doing this practice, which I'm about to define for you, um, they pivoted and said, maybe we'll do it a little less. Maybe we'll put some rules around it. It has never stopped. The government brought in a regulation about carding a couple of years ago, and you cannot regulate something if it is not existing. Right. If something doesn't exist, it can't be regulated. So I want to be very clear that carding still exists. It was never eradicated. Um, when we talk about carding, we are talking about the police act of stopping a person who is not suspected of any crime and nevertheless asking that person for their identification. Give me your name. Give me your driver's license. Give me your address. Give me your date of birth. Who are your friends? Who are you with? And as the police are asking you all of these questions, they're documenting. They're making notes. Those notes go into a police file. And it does not matter if you get arrested that day because the whole point of carding is that it almost never results in an arrest. It's just surveillance. It's spying on innocent people and it disproportionately targets black people. So, yeah, sorry. People like like Nia Singh, who is a lawyer right here in Toronto, um, he's actually, he was one of the advocates um, with, with concerned carding and the carding system. And it have actually negatively impacted him to the point where he was um, refused when he was going a simple, um, he had to do, you know, a, a, I think it was a project where he had to sit in the back of a police car for his, in order to complete his law degree. And because of that database that was on him, because he's been stopped so many times, he was actually refused. Now, what's, what, why is it that 
a system that's supposed to be a surveillance system is negatively impacting black people. Because what the system is really designed to do is to say that all black people are guilty until proven innocent. So the reason you collect um, notes and information about an innocent person is so that later on you can frame them as a guilty person when they haven't done anything. And Nia's example that you just related is a good one because Nia was always stopped for non-criminal reasons. He has no criminal record. He's never been charged with a crime. He's never been convicted of a crime. So the fact that when he went to apply through his law school for a police ride along, that they said, okay, well, you're not, we're not saying you're a criminal, but we're saying you've had these negative interactions with the police. And during those interactions, you've been bold enough to say that you think that you're being racially profiled as a black man. And because you've said that on the record that we have kept of you, you are a resistant to police authority. And so you now don't get to do your police ride along for your law school practicum. People have lost jobs or been denied jobs over this kind of information. I tell a story in my book about a woman named Ayan Farah, who is a black woman that worked at Pearson Airport, the largest airport in Canada, here in Toronto. And the police collected information on relatives that were driving the car that was registered in her name. They never said that this woman did anything. They never said she committed a crime. They've surveilled other people in her car and said, we believe that these people are gang members. And since we know that you're affiliated with these so-called gang members, we think that you, Ayan Farah, are a threat to airline security. So we're taking away your security clearance. When you take away someone's security clearance, they can't work at the airport. So she lost her job and went to federal court to fight against this action. When she asked Transport Canada, who are these people that you're accusing me of being affiliated with who you say are gang members? They said, well, we can't tell you that. So this is another example. It doesn't just affect men. All right. So you were, you were explaining to us how the carding system is, was pretty much regulating and you, you brought on um, a, a, a person a live, uh, an actual person it happened to. In your book, you were discussing um, how she could not um, even get the information on who were the people that the surveillance was being conducted on who were driving her car. That's where we last stopped off. And, and that's just the thing, is that even if you are not the person that the police say is a threat to the public safety or a threat to whomever, if you are connected to them, if you're their brother, their sister, a friend, they can say, well, we have information on this friend of yours and you know them. So your association alone with them makes you dangerous as well. That's how Ayan Farah lost her job. And she went to federal court and I believe it took two and a half years for a federal court to say it was unfair for her to lose her security clearance over associations to people that she was never even made aware of. But you see, when you lose your security clearance and you can't work at the airport, even when the court says that was the wrong move by your employer, you don't get the money that you were supposed to be earning back. You don't even automatically get your job back. And so these have long-term life-altering consequences for the Black people that are being targeted. And that's why we've been speaking out so much about this practice, which is just part of a broader surveillance of Black people that's happening in Canada all of the time. This is one part of it.
Wow. In 2017, you left your position at the Toronto Star. And in a blog post, you stated, if I must choose between the newspaper column and the actions that I must take to liberate myself and my community, I choose activism in the service of Black liberation. Tell us what led to your exit from the Toronto Star. So this also is uh, covered in a whole chapter of my book, and it relates to carding, which is what we were just speaking about. So at some point in my career as a journalist, after having covered this issue of carding for years, after believing that doing good journalism on this issue would force politicians to stop the practice of carding, would force politicians to destroy all of this information they were keeping on innocent people. When that didn't happen, I started thinking something more is needed here. And I was particularly inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement in our own city here in Toronto. Black Lives Matter Toronto began organizing in this city in late 2014. And they started bringing attention to the fact that police are killing Black people in this city, that police are engaging in this carding practice that I've been talking about. They started bringing attention to discrimination in the education system among children, which I talk about a lot in the book. They started talking about queer and trans Black people who are being discriminated against and excluded in communities across this country. It, the work was just so important and so inspiring to me that I realized, you know, Desmond, just uncovering the facts doesn't mean that things change. So in 2017, I had been already doing tons of activism. I had been working at the Star for a year and a half. They invited me to be a columnist with them because they knew about my activism as well as my journalism work. Now, um, before we even continue, I, yeah. I just want you to explain to our audience because um, a lot of times we don't understand the difference between a columnist and a reporter. So can you explain the difference before you even continue so that we can have a clear understanding as to what your role was at the Toronto Star? No, that's an excellent uh, question. So as a columnist, it was my job to look at things that are going on in the news and in culture and in social life across the country and to make opinions about it, right? You're, you're an opinion offerer, maker, shaper. You're somebody presenting arguments. I've been a reporter and I still do reporting. Reporters though don't give their opinion, that's not their job, but it was explicitly my job to give my opinion. And activists are columnists in publications all over this country and have been for decades. It's not weird or new that an activist would also write opinion pieces. So that's what I was doing. However, in April of 2017, I engaged in a demonstration at the police board, a police board that I had covered uh, for years. The police board is the civilian agency that is supposed to oversee the police and hold them accountable. But the police board didn't stop carding no matter how much reporting was done and no matter how much demonstrating was done. So one day in April of 2017, when the police board had a meeting, I disrupted that meeting by refusing to leave the speaker's chair after speaking for five minutes, which is the rules. And after five minutes. What was your role though? What, why were you at, were you reporting? Were you? Um, no, I wasn't reporting that day. I was simply, I was simply there 
as a member of the public, which is my right and my responsibility to speak to the police board. I wasn't there writing a story that day. I wrote at that time for the Toronto Star once every two weeks. So uh, I had a column there every other week. But on my free time, I do whatever I want to do like everybody else. So I went to this police board meeting and I refused to leave the speaker's chair after saying that this practice of carting the mayor, John Tory, had promised to stop it and he had not. And that civilian board had promised they were going to stop doing this practice after it was thoroughly exposed and delegitimized. But they lied. They didn't stop the practice. They just tried to trick us all and then kept it going under different pretenses and rules. When I refused to leave the speaker's chair that day, um, they adjourned the meeting. And it was very embarrassing for the board because they showed that they would rather leave their responsibilities and walk out from that room than deal with a black person who was like, why have you lied to us? So after that happened, the Toronto Star called me into their offices and I had a meeting with my editor, Andrew Phillips, who told me that I had violated the Toronto Star's rules because in his opinion and in the newspaper's opinion, I had been acting as the actor of a story and the describer of a story at the same time. Now, remember, I wasn't describing anything. I never asked the Toronto Star, hey, can I write a non-biased column about my own political demonstration? I just went to the demonstration and went home. I was a freelance writer for the Toronto Star. They had no contract with me. I had no benefits, no salary, no union protection. I literally never signed anything with the Toronto Star all we had was an agreement saying that they would accept my pieces and suddenly they're acting like I'm tenured and they have some kind of hold over me. So they told me I had violated the rules of their publication and that I had to choose whether or not I wanted to be an activist or a columnist for their newspaper. And that is when I wrote what you read just now and said, if you want me to choose between writing for this paper two times a month and fighting for the liberation of my community, that's very easy. I quit. Now, journal journalists, uh, it's funny you brought that up because um, journalists, even as me, a student um, at Ryerson University, we're taught to be objective. Um, we're taught to be objective by the likes of, of Kathy English, the editor for the current editor for the Toronto Star. And also um, we've, we've heard from um, from other journalists, such as um, Josh, um, that's Josh R. Crusher, who is with Crusher, who's with the National Post, that we have to be objective and we cannot insert ourselves in stories. Um, as a journalist, what is your understanding of this? Can you separate yourself from being an activist and a journalist? So the problem with this debate is that it is a false debate. Um, there is no such thing as objective journalism. It does not exist. You cannot teach somebody how to be objective. Uh, there is no course in journalism school that says, here's what it means to be objective. It's just this fluffy notion that, quite frankly, white people have created to say, when I don't agree with you, when I feel threatened by what you're doing, you are no longer objective. Um, you cannot point to a publication on this planet that is, not, that is not giving its own slant and ideas 
and its own understanding of the world when it publishes. Even choosing what story is an important story to publish and what is not. How is that objective? If you turn on five different news stations in Canada today, they might have five different lead stories. So if there's such a thing as objectivity and it's obvious to everybody what it is, how come these five different major news networks have five different lead stories? How come some of them cover stories all the time and others don't cover those issues at all? They are making choices. And we should support the right of journalists to make the choices about what things are important to cover. And we should follow the journalists who we agree with when it comes to, oh, I think that's an important story. I'm going to watch so-and-so newscast because they have stories that I feel are important to my life, important to my experience. There's no such thing as being objective. But of course, if you are a black person in any field, you have been told this before also. You have been told by white people that you're slanting things that are just your experience. We've all been told that we're biased when we talk about our experiences as black people, not just journalists. So this is just a way of trying to shut people up to say that they're not being objective. Let me tell you something. There's a woman who used to write columns for the Toronto Star, the same publication that told me not to be an activist while writing for them. And her name uh, is uh, Michelle Landsberg. Michelle Landsberg had petitions for issues that she was fighting for that were published in the Toronto Star. As an environmentalist, I, I know. She's a woman's activist, right? She did a lot of activism work. How, how come a publication that says it's important not to be biased, why would they publish a petition? A petition says I've made up my mind and I wanna fight for something. Why do newspapers pretend that when it comes to black people, Nobody is allowed to make up their mind on everything. That's just a way of forestalling liberation for black people and saying, well, there isn't a consensus on your freedom yet. And so we're not going to talk about it as if it's solved and it's settled. We always have to argue about whether or not black life is valuable, whether or not the black person who was hurt by the police deserved it, whether or not the black child who was handcuffed in the school deserved it. That's the game of objectivity. We don't need to do this, and it is not real. If you don't agree with something that a, an opinion maker says in a newspaper, you can have a counter opinion. You can argue, you can think for yourself. But the idea that I have to protect, pre present an opinion that doesn't offend or bother anybody, what's the point of being a columnist then? What's the point of having an opinion page if white people being offended means that your opinion no longer matters? That's my problem with this notion of objectivity is that it doesn't exist. Black people just can't win in this white supremacist construct called Canada, uh, which only exists through the ongoing genocide and subjugation of indigenous peoples and the theft and destruction of their traditional uh, indigenous territories. As a result of this, your countless columns on right white supremacy in Canada. Make note, I just recited something from your book because I do have a digital yes, copy. That, that was a quote from my book and it is wonderful to hear my book being quoted. Thank you. Uh, so that is a quote from The Skin I'm In. The Skin uh, I'm In, sorry. Yes. The, you've actually been accused of making everything about race. How do you feel about white people? <laughs> uh... How long do you have? Um, <laughs> I, I, I feel like 
in my country, in this country, in Canada, um, white people are in denial, quite frankly, and that it's in their interest to continue to be in denial and to falsely pretend that they don't understand what black people are talking about. Um, the whole world was supposed to be surprised when we learned a few months ago during our federal, federal election that our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, wore blackface. Not only once, not twice, not even three times. Our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, acknowledged that he has worn blackface more times than he can remember. And that he did it because he didn't understand that blackface is wrong. Um, we had to pretend in Canada that that's a believable explanation because otherwise we would have to throw out our prime minister. So what do I think about white people in this country? I think that they would rather support Justin Trudeau, not only for wearing blackface, but for engaging in all kinds of racist policy making, which I describe in my book, that they would rather do that than have to listen to and redress the issues that black people face. I was talking to some students who have been reading my work, uh, they're high school students, and we had a conversation this week. And um, one of them asked, why does racism continue to exist so long after enslavement, the beginnings of colonization, et cetera? My answer to that question is that somebody is benefiting. That's why I don't simply say racism, that's why it's not even enough for me to just say anti-Black racism is a problem. We have to talk about where that anti-Blackness comes from. It comes from white supremacy. It comes from the belief, the doctrine, that white people are superior. And white people had to convince themselves when they tried to colonize the entire world from Europe that they had the right to do so from God because God thought that white people were superior to everybody else. That framework, that ideology of white supremacy has never gone away. And so what I think about white people is that they benefit from white supremacy and that it really sucks to benefit from a racial hierarchy and that you should not want to benefit from a racial hierarchy and that you must work actively to give away the privileges that white supremacy has conferred upon you as a white person. My beef is not with white people because they're white. My beef with white people is that they refuse to give up the power that they don't deserve. Wow. How do you, how do you feel about the government's representation of Afro-Canadians in Canada? I think that... Um, what our governments do now is they engage in public relations exercises. Our governments are specialists, if at nothing else, than in public relations about how to make it look like they care about and are working for Black people while continuing for have us having the highest incarceration rates after Indigenous people, the highest rates of people killed by the police, the most suspensions and expulsions from public school, one of the lowest incomes when we do get a job, if we get a job. So many of the temporary workers come from the Caribbean in this country are black and they're brought here 
And, you know, I know that a lot of people without things like I talk in my uh, book about the um, the domestic workers scheme, which we now call the temporary foreign workers program. That has brought a lot of people from the Caribbean to Canada, but it has brought them here under the understanding that they will be treated like third class, fourth class people, that they will not have access to health care, that if they get injured on the job, they can be sent home that their employers can dominate and control them as if we're still in a form of indentured slavery in this country, indentured servitude. Um, that's the issue, is that when you look at Black life in Canada, it doesn't matter how much spin the government wants to put on it. The, the proof is in everything from where we live, what kind of jobs we can access, what kind of incomes we have, our relative health outcomes poorer than the rest of people in Canada. Our governments today also have a handful of black people who have been elected. And they try to sell that back to us too. And I talk about this in the book. They try to sell back to us the idea that we're making progress because there's a few black people in government now. But those black people support mass incarceration of black people. Uh, they are overseeing a child welfare system where in Toronto now 40% of the children apprehended and taken away from their parents are black. The black population in Toronto is not even 10%. How could we be 40% of the child welfare cases? But this addition of one or two black people to the government or to senior bureaucracy, they try to make us believe that one day we're all going to get there. But it's not happening. It's window dressing, unfortunately. That's why we have to engage in a broader form of activism that includes everybody that says until all black people have access to a good life, then none of us are free. That's powerful. I received the digital copy of your book last night and I read all 245 pages. What? <laughs> because I had to be prepared. For this, wow! At four a.m., and in the final chapter of your book, you speak about the Federation of Black Canadians—that's the FBC, which claims to be a national nonprofit organization driven by Black organizations across the country. Now, the Federation of Black Canadians says on its site, which I visited, that it is. The so its sole purpose is to advance the social, economic, political, and cultural interests of Canada of Canadians, sorry, of African descent, and to mobilize, empower, transform. It also claims to be a politically non-partisan. You mentioned in your book that you were invited to its launch, and that it has a political agenda. What do you mean? I mean that. In December of 2017, I was invited to this big gala at the Toronto Reference Library. And we have a foundation in Canada called the Mikhail Jean Foundation. Uh, Mikhail Jean is a former governor general in Canada, and she's one of the most recognizable black people, black Canadians in the world, uh, most high profile. Her organization invited me to this gala where we were all told, hundreds of us from across the country, that there is this new organization called the Federation of Black Canadians, 
and that they are going to be the new national advocacy group for black people. Now, this was bizarre because no one had ever heard of the Federation of Black Canadians. So the idea that they had a mandate to start advocating for black people everywhere was weird. Like, we don't even know their names. We didn't so know anything about it. So you're saying you come to this thing to pretty much see this is who is going to represent you. There was no level of um, they didn't go on the grounds and say, OK, let's see who you'd like to be part of this. There was no set of organization behind it rather than you coming in and being told that this is who this is. Yeah, it was really weird because usually when an organization that wants to represent people gets started, they, you know, talk to the people that they hope to represent. Like, usually that's how it works. But what we did notice immediately was that this so-called nonpartisan group was extremely connected to the federal liberal government under Justin Trudeau. And what, we noticed... What made you notice that? Well, for one, the uh, immigration minister at the time, who is a black man named Ahmed Hussein. Uh, he had the immigration portfolio and he got up on stage that night and told us that the Federation had asked him to join their group. If you're lobbying the government, how can a member of the government be part of the group? It doesn't make any sense. But something that Ahmed Hussein didn't tell us that night was that a woman named Ebian Farah was on the steering committee of the Federation of Black Canadians. Ebian Farah is Ahmed Hussein's wife. So you have a husband and wife who are part of government. She's part of uh, that by association to her husband telling us we will advocate what to, to ourselves. How is that possible? We're the ones who are trying to hold the government accountable. You can't be part of the group that's advocating against you. Um, this organization, we were told, was being led by a judge a sitting Ontario judge named Donald McLeod, a black man who got up and gave a speech that night and told us that, you know, this group formed basically very quietly and that they had our community's interests at heart. We soon learned that the Federation of Black Canadians before that gala, the summer before, had been meeting with Prime Minister Trudeau, we learned that before this group had ever made any contact with black people, that they had been meeting with Prime Minister Trudeau, the Liberal Premier of Ontario, Kathleen Wynne, the Federal Liberal Cabinet, and they had been making time to do all of this, but never meeting with or talking to the black community that they said that they were going to be serving. And that was the biggest clue that something was wrong. After I reported that the immigration minister's wife was on the steering committee, she resigned from the steering committee. And in the subsequent two years since this group has been operating, they have done absolutely nothing for the black community except to wait for the Liberal Party to call a press conference on this or that thing having to do with black issues and stand behind the government and applaud them for whatever they're announcing. But they have done no advocacy. They have no structure. They have no formal public meetings. They have no membership, no bylaws, no constitution, no elections. They are a front. They are a front put together by the Liberal Party that was supposed to trick black people into thinking that the liberals were now advocating for black life in this country. 
And I think that they've been thoroughly exposed. And I want people to read my book in part to learn the lesson that this is how governments try to adapt. First, they try to ignore black people. But when things like the Black Lives Matter movement are successful and activists in this city and around the country are being more successful in raising our issues and putting pressure on them, their next move is usually to say, well, we can find our own group of black people, a group of black people who will do what we want them to do. And we'll try to cut out these radicals and troublemakers and kind of change the channel on the public. That's what's been done in Canada. Well, uh, we have a few questions and comments coming up. And uh, one of them is um, by Mema Raphael, who is uh, located in California. She said, congrats Desmond on your work. I think that as, that the educational, legal, labor market ecosystem exposes the, the institutional racism that has helped frame Canada's treatment of Blacks. It was something that I researched as an undergrad uh, student uh, in Canada 20 years ago. Do you think that is with more, do you think that is with more Black activists like yourself and the transparency that social media brings to many causes and access to different opinions via the internet that Canadian Blacks are being, a uh, being able to help champion change? Well, uh, thank you, Mema, for the question. I really appreciate it. It's a great question. And um, the reason that I wrote this book was to show the struggle that we are going through and the successes that Black people are able to have from time to time when we organize, when we fight back, when we see what's going on with government, with the police, with our educational systems, et cetera. We educate ourselves and then we mobilize uh, to demand better. That's when things can change. And I do think that activists across this country are doing that. And I cite various examples. I talked about um, two black women in uh, a place called North Preston in Nova Scotia. That's a majority black town. And all they wanted to do was to set up a community space for black youth that they would feel comfortable going to. Because the one place in their town that's supposed to be for young people is a government uh, run community center that is literally connected to a police station. There is a door in between the community center and the police station, you know? And a lot of young people didn't feel comfortable in that space. And so these two young women, uh, Lamia and Kardisha, they're sisters, and they said, we can do better. So they started doing community programming in their mom's basement. And when I went to visit them a couple of years ago while I was writing this book, they had 17 young people in that basement. And it had only been uh, a year since I had met them and they told me this is what we wanna do in our community. I do think that that makes a difference and it certainly made a difference to those young people. I think that when activists, including Black Lives Matter Toronto and many others, um, education, not incarceration and many other groups got together and said, we don't want armed police officers in our public schools in Toronto. So if people wanna tell me that black life in Canada is so different from everywhere else, especially different from the United States, 
why do we have police officers with guns in our schools? If it's so safe and friendly here, how come the schools that were chosen in the Toronto District School Board were so many schools where black kids go to school? Because they didn't put white or they didn't put cops in every school in Toronto. They picked which ones they wanted. And those were primarily schools with lower income, racialized populations, including black students. Why is that? Why are we pretending? But you see people mobilized against that program and got it removed. Um, people fought successfully against Nancy Elgie, a racist school board trustee who wouldn't apologize after she was caught calling a black person the N-word at a public meeting about equity of all things. When she was caught saying that and it was reported, she denied it and refused to resign. But Charlene Grant, the woman that she had directed that racial slur at, a parent with children at the school board, she fought back. She mobilized a lot of people in her community. And they did eventually, after three months, force this trustee to resign. Um, I left the Toronto Star after my incident with them. And people might think that that was a loss for me as an activist and as a writer. But with the... Uh, with the debut of this book, I don't really feel like I'm losing because I get to tell the truth on my own terms. And I had a company saying, tell your truth, Desmond, and actually we're going to print it. We win all the time, but the victories are part of a bigger struggle, right? And the only way that we can have an opportunity to make strides is if we fight back. So I try to document in my book, not just the struggles, not just the painful circumstances, but the ways that people mobilize in order to fight back in the name of Black liberation. What organizations, in your opinion, Desmond, in Toronto represent the interests of Black Canadians? What organizations do? Well... <laughs> I think that, you know, that's a tricky question. And I'm not an expert in all of the hundreds and hundreds of Black organizations that are doing work in this country in service of Black people. I talked about Black Lives Matter Toronto in my book a lot because in the year 2017, which I document in this book, they were doing a lot of really important and I think successful interventions, effective interventions um, into a better day for black people. But they are by no means the only organization. I think that the issue becomes not the organization, but the mandate. So I don't care how big or small an organization is. I don't care how much or little money that they have. What I do care about is, do they do things like consult with the community first and to do what is in the community at large's best interest, or do they consult with police, government officials, and funders first, and then make their programming up based on that? That is really what concerns me, is that so many of the organizations in Canada that represent Black people who actually get funding and get support to do their work the cost of doing that is that you have to do things that funders want you to do that actually keep hurting black people. So they want you to have a police officer in your community center if you want to get government funding. They want you to give up people's personal information to the government in order to get funding. These things are a problem for me. 
And I definitely support Black people trying to become independent of government resources so that when we need to challenge government, we are free to do so. That's the key for me. That's beautiful. In comparison to the U.S., uh, Canada is the multicultural city. Uh, we, we know we've known to have um, to, to be very accepting where diversity is concerned. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of the differences between Canada and the U.S. as it relates to racism? I tried very hard in this book not to focus on the United States, to write a book explicitly about Canada. Because um, I think that our great dodge in this country is to say, well, it's not as bad as America. That's exactly it. <laughs> well, do you know something? If I cut off your arm, JL, I can't tell you that you should be lucky that I cut off somebody else's legs. That's not how it works. That's not how justice works. That's not how equity works. I live in this country. So I do see what happens to Americans. But if you are cutting off my arm, I'm not going to comfort myself that someone else's legs in another country are being chopped off. I have to de deserve and receive justice for myself, no matter what you're doing to somebody else somewhere else. That's not my issue. My issue is how I'm able to live as a black person here. Americans are way more honest about anti-black racism than we are. And I would say that the majority of white Canadians don't even know that their British colonial government enslaved black people on this territory for hundreds of years, along with indigenous peoples. They don't even know that. So uh, we need to learn more about the history of our country and focus on what's happening in our country so that when people continue acting surprised about anti-black racism here, we can say, well, but it's been happening for hundreds of years. Get with the program, right? So... That's very important to me. I want yeah, to focus on I, Canada. Because I think we, as Canadians, the message that we, we send off is that it is definitely, uh, we're very much accepting of all cultures, of all ethnicities, and, and people have actually uh, are sure that there's no racism in Canada. And, and oh, that is a that's thing for the US. That doesn't happen here. Uh, people, I, I've had, you know, relatives say to me, um, I feel uncomfortable in a certain space, but they will not say it because you might get fired if a white person says, oh, you're a nigger. Or, you know, if a white person makes a comment about that uh, in your workspace, they could get fired, unlike the states where people feel more open and free to say whatever they please. So there's always a, 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 a battle as to whether or not Canada is like the States or Canada is worse than the States. Canada is the same as the States. Um, in terms and I, and I, just believe, I just believe that that's a great distraction from not focusing on what we're doing here. If the argument always has to be whether or not we're better or worse than the United States, we're never really going to take a look at Canada for its own merits and just talk about that. How, how is it possible that a country like Canada was before the United States making a decision to say Haitian refugees need to get out of our country? So this is, a, this is an issue that a lot of us can understand because 
since, as I chronicle in my book, since the mid uh, 2000s, so around 2004, 2005, Haiti has been in a serious political unrest. And Haitians by the thousands, tens of thousands, have left that country to find safety. Many of them went to the United States and many came here to Canada. But I document in my book about how when the evil orange man who's in the White House in the United States says, you know what, Haitians, we're going to end your temporary permits to be in this country and we're going to send you back home whether it's safe or not. Those Haitians then tried to run to the Canadian border, not knowing that Canada had already done that. Canada had already said, you can't come here. In fact, we're trying to deport many of the Haitians who have come into Canada. But Quebec has a huge Haitian population because it's French speaking. But Haitian people have such a hard time securing citizenship. They have a hard time finding work. They face discrimination in all of the areas of life that we've been talking about. What is the difference? What is the difference except that one country is, I think, a little bit more honest about its racism and the other is not? It's just branding. Ask a Haitian person who's been trying to get citizenship in Canada for years if it's different. Ask them if having to renew their paperwork every two or three months makes them feel good because they're not in America. We need to stop doing this. When people tell us a story about their experience of anti-black racism and white supremacy, instead of diverting the conversation to say, well, who cares about what you're going through? Let's talk about this other place where black people are being tortured even worse. Enough of that. Enough of that. Let's listen to the stories and experiences that people have to share in this country and validate those stories. And then we can act. How can we end racism in Canada? Um, it is a lifelong journey. This book that I wrote is dedicated and you see in the first pages, there is a dedication there and it says it's for Adora. Mm -hmm. Adora was my maternal grandmother, Adora Hamilton. Um, my parents were lucky. They were both able to sponsor their mothers to come to Canada after they moved here in the 70s and early 80s. And um, those two women took care of me and my sister and raised us. And they allowed for my parents to be able to go to school or sorry, to go to work uh, and to have childcare, to have somebody watching over their children. So my grandparents, uh, my grandmother's contributions to Canada are great. But now we live in a country where it's harder than it was when my parents were around doing this to sponsor your parents to come to Canada. It's actually harder and you need more money in order to do that now than you did before because of the racist narrative that immigrants are flooding the Canadian system. And again, isn't that what the Americans are supposed to say? How come our governments and our people have the exact same viewpoint of black immigrants that they are just here to steal social programs, to weigh down the social safety net, to come here and take a job from a white person. How come that persists in Canada to this day if we're so different? My grandmother's sacrifice needs to be acknowledged in this country. They made it possible for me to be sitting here and speaking to you tonight. But when my grandmother, Adora, was an elderly woman because she wanted to qualify to get a little bit of a pension. 
she had to clean people's motel rooms as an elderly woman in this country. That's a lifelong struggle against racism that I have to take up because my grandmother sacrificed so that I could be here. She didn't get to see racial equity in this country while she was alive. And I don't know if I'm going to see racial equity in Canada while I'm alive. I doubt it. And I doubt it because it's taken us hundreds of years of inequity to get to this point. So it would be a little bit rich of me to think that I or the people around me can solve it in our lifetime. But by the way, it is not up to black people to end racial inequity because we didn't create it. Those who I said in the beginning are benefiting from white supremacy. It is their responsibility to dismantle it and they have more ability to do so than black people do. That is when racism will end in Canada. When white people decide that all of these benefits that white supremacy gives them are actually unfair and that they don't want it anymore. They reject this system that secures life, happiness, um, opportunity for white people while denying it to everybody else and while using black people as the scapegoats. And I would say, you know, I mentioned securing happiness. White people in this country are really not happy. That's the really funny thing. I love James Baldwin, the American writer and thinker. And James Baldwin was very, very consistent about talking about how white Americans are so unhappy despite the fact that they have dominated everything in that country, that they wiped out so much of the indigenous population in America. They took all the wealth. They have the oil. They have all of the water and all of the natural resources. They have the best jobs. They go to the best schools. And they're always put in social circumstances ahead of black people. Still not happy. So it's kind of shitty, if I can say that, to live in a society with racial inequity as the foundation. It doesn't really make anybody happy. And that's why I think that um, we have to explore how this system of white supremacy erodes everybody's spirit, takes away everybody's chance to be a full human being, not just black people. White supremacy destroys all human life. Capitalism destroys all human life. This problem that we're seeing with our climate around the world is not just going to hurt black people. It hurts everybody when certain people are allowed to hoard wealth and resources to pollute the air, to pollute the water, to no consequence. So it's everybody's liberation that's at stake, not just mine. And the sooner that white people recognize that, the better. Alison Alexander says, um, it's woven into the fabric of the society, not in our lifeguard. Uh, that's a comment from one of the, the people on the broadcast. If you have not pre-ordered, I pre-ordered it, okay? So The Skin I'm In comes out on January 28th. Desmond, it has been a pleasure. I mean, I've spoken to you um, two occasions. I've had the opportunity and I hope that uh, you know, we could work in the future, you know, as journalists together. Um, it has been a pleasure, you know, hearing your journey and, and seeing how much of a troublemaker you are <laughs> and how much you don't care to say exactly how you feel and what you think is right. Uh, so I want to applaud you on that. I want to thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to interview you on my platform. Because uh, a lot of times 
for black journalists in North America, we do not get these coveted interviews, you know, because your book I know is going to be one of one that will live on forever because it speaks to every single one of us. It has a, a lot of history. Um, it's based mostly, uh, most of it is on your experience, but it's factual experience. And um, I think you're going to do just great. And I am very happy and grateful that you allowed me the opportunity to interview you on Capote. And I wish you all the best with your book launch and see you have like all these book tours going on. What's next for Desmond? Um, well, the book comes out on January 28th. Uh, and on February 5th, I'm going to have a launch event here in Toronto. And then I will be going to seven cities across the country to do a tour and to promote this book uh, far and wide and to encourage people to read to encourage people to think along with me, to share their own stories and experiences, and to join collectively together to fight for our liberation. Um, you know, I am really kind of basking in this moment because I signed that book deal four and a half years ago. And there were times that I didn't think I was going to be able to finish this project. It's the hardest project that I've ever worked on as a journalist or as a person. Um, so it is so sweet to be in this particular moment right now and to know that I'm on the verge of seeing this book come out to the world. And uh, what's going to happen for me is that I'm going to go on tour and I'm going to continue fighting for black life. I, I just got off the radio and we did a story today about a black woman in Halifax, Nova Scotia, who was shopping. And I see you nodding because you already know the story. She was shopping in Walmart this week with her two young children. And she was um, at a cashier that doesn't have a scale to weigh the groceries. And she had some produce items. So the guy scanned through all the items that he could. She paid for them. And then he said, you're going to have to go to another cashier so that they can weigh these produce items. And then you can pay for those as well. While she was walking to the other cashier, her three-year-old stopped to look at some toys and she was then surrounded by Walmart staff, a security guard and a police officer. And they accused her of stealing from the store. I don't know how you can steal from a store when you're still inside the store walking with your children. And so when she said, well, I'm not stealing, look, here's my purse. Look, here's my baby stroller. If you would like to have a look at them, please do. I have nothing to hide. What did the police respond? We want your identification. What was I saying about carding? We don't want to prove that you're stealing. We just want all your personal information for later so that as a black person, we have something on you. This behavior towards this woman ended with the police officer attacking her, giving her a beating, breaking her wrist, and then she was arrested and charged with assaulting the police, resisting arrest, and causing a disturbance in the store in front of her two babies. And she was put in the back of a police car and separated from her children. That happened four days ago. So my work isn't done. And as long as things like that are happening in this country, our work is not done. Our work continues 
whatever platforms that I have, I will continue using them to expose this white supremacist regime in this country and to fight back because we have to fight back. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks to all those of you who tuned in. Don't forget to pick up that book, pre-order. It's available on Amazon, I checked. <laughs> you can also get it on Audible, I checked because I have it there as well. So you can, um, if, you, if you're one of those who love to um, audiobooks, you know, while you drive, if you have long drives or, or not, uh, you can definitely pre-order The Skin I'm In, Desmond Cole. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks to all those of you who uh, commented. Uh, we had quite a few um, exchanges people are saying before. I didn't know that it was that bad in Canada. Thank you, Desmond and JL. Um, someone also said, um, I will be making the book available as a resource on my campus. Thank you very much for that. And uh, we're just you. absolutely grateful to all those of you who came on the broadcast. I want to remind you, if you have not shared, please make sure you do so. Also, I want to say thanks to Digicel, uh, of course, for allowing this broadcast to be on their platform, the Digicel Playgo app. So thank you very much for that opportunity and to our sponsors, Easy Barrel, for making this show possible. Desmond, thank you so very much again for- Well, Jay, just, just before you sign off, I want to say thank you to you for promoting my work. And I salute you as an up and coming journalist in this country who's also doing the work, who also deserves a lot of respect and recognition for creating your own platform where you can do the journalism work that you want to do. And you know exactly what you're doing. And I salute you for leading because we're all in this struggle together. And I just, I honor and appreciate the work that you're doing for real. Thank you very much, Jasmine. And thank you again for being on here. I know you have a, a packed schedule. All the best on your tour. Of course, I will try my almost best to be at your launch on February the 5th. Until next time, thanks, guys, for tuning in. Bye, all.